Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of our pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle filming pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight, we're calling this Spy Movie Night. I've gathered together four learned gentlemen who have definite opinions in what have been the greatest spy movies of all time, of which I have thoughts too. Joining us are in alphabetical order, Danny Biederman, co-author of The Incredible World of Spy Fi and the cur curator of an amazing exhibit of his thousands of spy film and TV related props, which tours the world. International attorney and litigator Malcolm McNeil, who owns one of the largest collections of James Bond memorabilia in the world, if not the largest. Action-adventure author and spy film buff Stephen Cobrin, whose latest thriller novel is The Man from Belize. Is that starring John Paul Belmondo, perhaps? Uh, <laughs> and, and last but not least, an Academy Award-winning special effects makeup artist, designer, writer, director, producer... Robert Short, who is also one of the world's leading authorities on everything related to the man from Uncle. Now that's quite a panel. Hi, guys. Hello, Steve. Hello, Steve. Hi, pleasure to be here tonight. Great being here. Yep. Hello, everyone. So I've I've asked each of our wonderful panelists to come up with a number of their favorite films. And I thought we would discuss them, celebrate them, tear them apart, put them back together, talk a little bit about behind the scenes. But this is, uh, I don't have any audio playing right now, but like, I'd like to play the James Bond music theme because it kind of got us all started in a way. Um, but Bob, you had something interesting to say. You said that the first movie in the spy genre was not a Bond movie. Yeah, was, yeah, when you asked what our first spy films were that we'd ever seen to kind of introduce us to spies, my immediate reaction was, oh, Goldfinger, of course. You know, as a teenager, going to Goldfinger for the first time and going, having my mind blown, going, oh, my God, this is a whole different genre of film characters and stuff. I've never seen this before. But then I realized that the first spy film that I had ever seen as a kid was The Road to Hong Kong with Bob Hope because that that was actually the film, you know, a, a film that I had seen previous to Goldfinger that I realized in later years yeah, was a spy film that was very much like Dr. No, with an underground missile and, you know, spies and intrigue and comedy, of course. Um, but yeah, I'd re I, I, you know, my like I say, my first inclination was Goldfinger. Then I realized, no, actually, The Road to Hong Kong was the first spy film that I had ever seen which was the last of the celebrated road pictures that had started back in the 1940s with yeah. Hope and Crosby. What about you, Steve? What was your first spy thing that you'd ever saw? Well, the first spy picture that I went to go see in the theater was in 77 and I was six. It was the Roger Moore Bond picture, The Spy Who Loved Me. But as I say, I think that I came to really the the spy pictures that are certainly my three favorites kind of in reverse but that was a very vivid memory for me steve because it was at our local neighborhood theater which at the time was the uh well there's actually two one on the west side one in the valley because we lived in between off mulholland but that picture we went to go see at the i don't know if you remember the man's movies of tarzana on ventura boulevard 
Sure, sure, of yeah. course, of course. Right. So we, so yeah. that was that was the very first spy picture I went to see, and then after that, I just became consumed by the whole genre, and then I just sort of started tearing it up and getting into much much older films, and you know, some films that came a little bit after that we'll talk about when we get into our, you know, our top three favorite. Well, you're making me feel very old. While you were swaddling in your diapers, I was on, on the Pinewood Studios set having uh, lunch at the commissary with Ken Adam and Michael Wilson. Oh, wow. They just wrapped The Spy I Love Me, so I didn't see anything, but I saw one of the first screenings of the movie. You know, it, one thing I wanted to ask you, Steve, as as you as I actually am a very big fan of your book, and I have your book, but I've always wondered because it's actually not my personal favorite of his, the Moore films. But is there any truth to the, I guess, rumor that's floated around for a while that his personal favorite of the of the seven he made actually was Spy Who Loved Me? Is that is that true? You know, to be honest, I never met Roger. He did okay. answer some questions once. That was not one of them. I wouldn't be surprised if that was his favorite because <clears throat> I think that was the movie that really catapulted the whole series because I think so. Live and Let Die did okay. And then The Man with the Golden Gun, I just didn't think did very well. I think it was just kind of uninspired. But The Spy Who Loved Me, that well, of course, that was the summer of 1977. That was the right. summer of Star Wars. Exactly. The summer of, uh, you know, the, 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 the new Bond movie arrived in a time when everybody was going to theaters. So the, the grosses were off the charts. So I, I would think that it was one of his. Malcolm, what, what do you think was the first spy movie you saw? Um, when I we were talking about this offline, I rem, it reminded me that the very first one I saw made me a Michael Caine fan, and I saw The Ipcrest File. And Great I was film. a kid, and I went to the movies on my own. I worked at a liquor store in Hollywood. Steve, you know, we lived in Hollywood. You know the whole story. So I would wander around at those ages and go to movies and, and see them on my own. And I just fell in love with it. And by the way, I think that's when I became a John Barry fan, because John Barry actually wrote oh, the yes. for Ipcrest File. Right. So in Bond, when I first ended up seeing my first Bond movies, which were actually a few years later, which was a double feature at the Hollywood Theater. Uh, it was on Her Majesty's Secret Service and From Russia with Love. And I, 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 I immediately fell in love at that time. However, in the meantime, there was one unfortunate event in my life, and that was that I went to see the original parody of Casino Royale. So that, but I did like it. I liked the music and I liked yeah. Ursula Andress and I like, my sister was a fan of Peter Sellers. So I didn't quite see it as rotten as I do today, but I will tell you, so it did have some redeeming features, but those are the first two. And of course I followed up on Ipcrest file with Funeral in Berlin and Billion Dollar Brain. Funeral in Berlin, I thought was fantastic. Billion Dollar Brain, not so much, but, uh, but that's when I became a Michael Caine fan. Well, the, the Casino Royale spoof really pissed off Broccoli. Uh, I, he told me that he and Harry uh, were really upset because everybody thought that Casino Royale spoof was their movie. They right. naturally assumed if James Bond was in a movie, it was produced by Albert R. Broccoli and, and Harry Saltzman. So it was, and it cut into their grosses. The grosses for You Only Live Twice that year were less than Thunderball. So I think that hurt them. 
I read, well, just one one last note on Ipcrest file. Uh, I remember reading a, a, an interesting article about Albert Broccoli, who was very upset with Harry Saltzman for producing the Harry Palmer movies. He was very upset because it's uh, Harry Saltzman's name was larger than the credits of anybody else. And he <laughs> dragged in he dragged in uh, a bunch of the folks that are familiar to Bond movies, but he had <laughs> joined the Harry Palmer Len Dayton series. So apparently uh, Broccoli spent a lot of his time upset. <laughs> yeah, I think in the history of show business, no, no two more dis, dis, um, different producers were Harry Saltzman and Albert R. Bro Albert R. Broccoli, very conservative, totally happy to be producing Bond movies for the rest of his life with no distractions except for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And then, of course, Harry Saltzman was like a gambler. He needed a, a hot table every two minutes. And that hot table got him into trouble later on with buying into Technicolor stock at all the right time. Danny, what what do you think was the first uh, spy movie that caught your fancy? The first one I remember seeing was Goldfinger. Um, yeah, because I would I don't I mean I might have seen something else when I was younger and not been aware it was a spy movie, but if it was if there was it was one that didn't impress me that much but it was it was coming right off of the man from uncle because uncle as as everyone knows you know debuted in in um, september of 64 and that's when i was first introduced to the whole idea of espionage and spies so when i saw the first episode i saw was iowa scuba affair and that just totally you know did a number on me and that's when my parents said oh if you like that you need to go see a James Bond movie. And I said, what's that? And so, and Goldfinger, of course, was just opening after Uncle debuted. And that, so I went to that theater and saw it and it, all it did was bolster everything that I'd already felt about the man from Uncle. So that's together. They just set me off, you know, for the rest of my life. So what's number one on your list? Number one on my list has to be Dr. Goldfoot and the girl bombs. <laughs> I was hoping that would get a laugh. Um, <laughs> actually, not bikini I, machine. <laughs> no, I, it's a, I think there's an argument to be made for girl bombs. Okay. Uh, anyway. no, so no. tell tell us why Doctor Goldfoot and the girl bombs is a favorite. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I won't go there. It's a, it's and, an awful movie. Yeah, and, my choices are going to even be weirder. So uh oh, okay. Okay, yeah. No, I mean, maybe no surprise, but my my favorite spy movie is from Russia with Love. And oh, I see you were making a joke there then earlier, right? <laughs> of course. Of course I was. It's called Tongue in Cheek, Steve. It's yes, it's what the Bond films do. Let's explain after the podcast. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I almost fell over from Rush with Love. Well, it's, uh, the listeners can't see it. But today, as my background, I have a shot of Daniela Bianchi and Sean Connery from From Rush with Love, which is also one of my favorites. And um, if you were going to describe From Rush with Love to a civilian who never saw it, Danny, what would you say? Um. I would just say it. I would highly recommend it as 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 a great spy movie because, really, I think it's so many elements, but it just all together is like a to to me like the perfect spy thriller. Um, it has all the elements. It has just tremendous. I guess I would call it flavor. The flavor of the movie, um, the setting with Istanbul, the um, you know. 
not only spy movies in general, but obviously out of James Bond movies, I just feel it has the best balance. It works so well as a story. I mean, as the the Fleming's novel does, in my opinion, um, it just it has a suspense. It builds the gadgetry, which became so prominent in the movies to me, was just perfect in that movie. It was not overblown. It was this really clever little gadget that that just suddenly everything is woven into the fabric of the movie. You know, the stuff with the characters and Red Grant and that being carried through the movie and how he's following Bond and making sure nothing happens to him. And he he does what what they're they're funneling him through to do. And then that great classic fight scene in the train at the end is so effective, not only because of how well it's made, but because of what's happened going leading up to it through the story with the characters. So, um, you know. Yeah, to me, it's just just the right balance of, of a great spy thriller. It's a perfect film. Uh, I remember reading that when Ian Fleming was writing his novels, he was very upset that they weren't selling in huge numbers and that he uh, he would get together occasionally with a good friend of his, Raymond Chandler, of course, another great author. And uh, he was commiserating. And the rumor has it, and I don't know if this is entirely true, that he was ready to kill off Bond already. He was just tired of it not being a smash, so he was going to kill Bond at the end. In fact, when when uh, Rosa Club is slashing out with her little shoe knives, supposedly she does catch Bond. And I think in the novel he does fall, and uh, that was going to be the end of James Bond. But if, according to the stories, I think it's in John Pearson's book, Raymond Chandler convinced Fleming to keep writing these great novels. The other thing about From Russia With Love is it popped up on John F. Kennedy's reading list that was publicized by Hugh Sidey and I believe Look or Life magazine. And that was considered the biggest boon to book sales in the history of Bond. Right. Yeah, very true. Very true. An ordinary leather attache case, case with 20, 20 rounds of ammunition. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> supposedly when Peter Hunt was cutting that sequence together, when Bond, uh, when he puts the the talcum powder in the, the, the talcum powder canister inside the briefcase and then shows Bond how to open it, when when they were running it in dailies, Peter cut in an explosion after... <laughs> after the uh, case is open and this at the end. And I think, and I don't think they liked the joke. <laughs> you know, Connery himself has been quoted as saying that was his favorite, you know, of the, of his Bond films too. I, I would, I would, it's, it's number three for me. I, I give a tie to Goldfinger and Casino Royale, not obviously the spoof, but the Daniel Craig Casino Royale, but it, it's hard to, it's hard to, to really give the numbers to the Bond movies because they're so good. Um, so, uh, let's go to Steve. Steve, what is one of you, what is your favorite spy movie of all time? Well, I thought about this for a while and it was hard to narrow it down to three, but I think my number one, I was tussling between From Russia With Love and this other one, but I think the reason why I chose what I chose is because, as I say, my first exposure to the genre was in seeing more in Spy Who Loved Me. So, I always kind of equated the whole thing with the sense of scale of the pictures. So I ultimately ended up, I ended up going with Thunderball. And for me, it it's Thunderball for a variety of reasons. 
I've always enjoyed and gotten the most pleasure out of the Bond pictures that had the greatest sense of scale. Thunderball, I think, is really all of the great creatives of the series. Barry, Ken Adam, Ten Moore, Ted Moore, and of course, Terrence Young, really firing on all cylinders with that picture. And it's interesting because I think there's something very, very modern about Thunderball, even today, 58 years later. I would defy anybody to really look at the, if you want to talk about really grand scale spectacle, to just look at the climax of that picture. Look at that extended underwater battle in Thunderball. And I don't think there's been a modern film yet today that has the kind of scale, the kind of grandeur, the kind of visual beauty that that sequence alone has uh, that can match it certainly can't top it. I don't think so. And it is 58 years later. And yet I never get tired of that picture. And it also, I mean, I, there's a lot of personal things there. It has my, my favorite Bond girl was Claudine Auger. Oh, total, I and, totally agree with you there. Yeah. And she's, she's in that picture and uh, it has one of my favorite uh, Bond villains, Adolfo Celli as Largo. Um, I thought that the chemistry between his superiors, you know, Lee and Llewellyn and Connery, they they all just sort of started feeling very comfortable by the time Thunderball came around. Do you know what I'm saying? And, um, you know, as much as I love that climax, I mean, who could deny that that opening, that opening sequence where <laughs> the, the fight scene with the assassin who you think is a female, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, that was actually Bob Simmons, wasn't it? Right. right. It was. Right, right. And, and uh, Rose Alba played the woman before she became Bob Simmons. Uh, right, right. And and then and then also in the uh, kind of pairing off with the Bond girls, the good Bond girl, the bad Bond girl, uh, Auger, I mean, who could deny that uh, Luciana Paluzzi was also just as fantastic as Auger? They really were a great pair and a, kind of a marvelous contrast that uh, added so much dimension to that film. And really, it's it's also it all it really all comes back to Terrence Young, though. Uh, you know, if we're going to talk about really the way these pictures were made and there's so much to say for for Marshall with love, because, again, that's another young picture. But he really was, for me, not just the principal architect behind the whole Bond universe. From my perspective, he was also the best filmmaker that the series ever had. And so ultimately, for me, I think it all just it culminated and kind of just kind of like. It reached its apex in Thunderball for, for my taste. One one of the things that I've just I've just noticed lately in the last four or five movies, yeah, is how they're getting less and less sexy. It's almost yes. like in this this kind mm -hmm. of uh PC woke world, you're right. afraid to show cleavage now. Right. I mean, uh uh what's the name of the actress in uh Spectre who's married to the guy who was killed? Uh Monica Bellucci? Monica Monica Bellucci, Bellucci, perhaps one of the most voluptuous women in Hollywood. A very no doubt about it. Sex, uh, Sophia Loren type, et cetera. Right. Gina Lola Bridget. Right. She's barely in the movie. Barely in the film. <laughs> what, that's, two minutes? That's right. Exactly. That's <laughs> I exactly mean, it's right. It's almost like Barbara's afraid to show anything like sexy. And of course, Cubby and Harry and Terrence Young. This was the sexy go-go 60s where you could do almost anything. I mean, I mean, how many times have we said today, if Goldfinger was made today, 
Bond is not going to slap Dink on the bottom and say man talk. Exactly. <laughs> considered off, off, off color. And I, I miss that. And then Thunderball is perhaps one of the most romantic of all the Bond movies because of the relationship between Bond and, and Domino. It absolutely oh. is. And, and, you know, it's so funny that you mentioned what you just said about Spectre with Bellucci, because I have kind of an observation here about these last five pictures with Craig that really I, I'm curious to hear what the panel thinks of this, because it's something I had a real problem with. And, and it was very simply this. As a fan and as a student, not just of the films, but of the Fleming books themselves, what really bothered me about the Craig films, as much as I love Craig himself as an actor, is I could never really stomach the whole concept that these five films kind of seem to be sort of like an, an epic saga that were all very intimately linked to one another. And I couldn't handle that because I always felt that the true Fleming novels and the films, the original films, Bond pictures really, for me, are meant to be standalone adventures. And that's what made them beautiful. And that's what made them brilliant. And the fact that Casino Royale, the Craig film, ties very intimately all the way down straight to No Time to Die and all the three pictures in between, it feels like one picture spread out across 12 and a half hours. And for me, that approach and I think, Steve, you said it yourself, it might come back to a decision that was made by by Barbara. I, I just never really liked that approach for these films. And I'm just wondering kind of what everybody thought about that in contrast to the way the earlier Conner, Connery pictures and even the more pictures were made as, like I say, as standalone adventures. Malcolm, what do you think? I, I I'd like to weigh in I, 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 a tiny disagreement on one, and that would be Skyfall. Skyfall felt like it stood alone, but I agree with you entirely. They, it, it was almost like it was forced in between to do the uh, to to attach each to each other. And I think yeah. Casino Royale was probably the sexiest, if you will, if we can say that about any of them, because of the relationship that he had with Eva Green and uh, how they and the comments and the the back and forth especially after he the torture scene and so forth there there was that element but it seemed that when they got to quantum of solace it all went away there was nothing right. going on with olga okay right. and then when we got into it in the movies were linked they were meant to be linked i think obviously because of the reference to the to the necklace and so forth but skyfall i i enjoyed but it's seed in the standalone but yeah when we got the specter uh it, it, i I like Spectre the first time more than I liked it the second time. I yeah. think that's, that's what I will. I think Steve, you and I talked about that. I said it was great. The, and it was the same thing, sort of the same thing with No Time to Die. They they didn't hold the, they didn't create that additional reverberation of wanting to see them over again because it almost, I, and I think it was a Barbara decision because I read all the reviews and I know people who know her. And there was a decision made that there was going to be a, a block of movies that were going to be the Daniel Craig Bond. And I think that's mm -hmm. why the, the screenwriters were probably um let's say uh directed in that direction bob what are your thoughts oh interestingly enough, i you know i come from the i come from the standpoint of i i was so glad that they actually killed bond in the in no time to die um because it meant that that whole universe wrapped 
was wrapped up. Right. <laughs> no longer yes. have to deal with it. Indeed. Because no, I completely in watching all the Craig films, they yeah. got in in watching the Craig films, it was amazing to see Daniel Craig, an actor of his caliber, mm-hmm. bring what he did to Bond, but the universe that he existed in didn't work for me. And there I was agree. something terribly wrong from the time of him uh uh, is it i guess it's uh i'll say quantum when quantum he's on yeah. quantum at the very beginning yeah. where he's connected the headquarters through an earpiece and he's basically like a remote control agent having to take orders from from headquarters something was terribly off with the interpretation of how bond how how bond functions and then we got to the brofeld brother foster brothers <laughs> section of one became the greatest agent in the world and the other became the greatest villain in the world and at that point i was like i don't know how we got here but we need to we need to go somewhere else so when they tied it up as as the craig films as its own universe and ended it mm-hmm. i was so relieved i was like i am ready for whatever you've got new coming up but that 15 year arc for me just wasn't firing on all cylinders and things like the them being foster brothers and creating it more every film got more and more human and more and more personal and more and more emotional right down to the very end yeah it was like this isn't in other words it wasn't the bond that i grew up grew up on absolutely and i make no excuses for that it just simply wasn't the bond that i grew up with and there and i certainly know people who love the Craig universe. Mm-hmm. Me too. The fact that he's so mm-hmm. fetchy feely and that it's all about his kid in the end and et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it's a different generation. And that's what's yeah. fascinating about bond is that it, it captivates different generations and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a style of film that does generate fan, you know, um, a fan base with different generations as they get introduced to Bond, which is fascinating because for me, Goldfinger was, you know, my favorite, you know, uh, my favorite Bond film, just because it was the first Bond film I ever saw, which was just a completely different entity than I had ever experienced right. uh, before. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that colored everything and everything that followed the same for, you know, if somebody was introduced with Octopussy or with Spy Who Loved Me or, mm-hmm uh or daniel in casino royale mm-hmm. um that's the fa- that's one of the fascinating phenomenons of bond is that it's like no matter how they change it there's still a fan base that that a new generation that that it, that embraces him but for me craig was a terrific actor i thought he did wonderful stuff with You're the character but the sure. universe but the university was in no thank you exactly D- danny right. you want to chime in on this discussion about the craig films yeah, I pretty much agree with uh, what seems to be, I guess, a consensus here. I was, I, especially now that that's over with and looking back at it, I'm really not happy with with what they did for the same reasons that Bob and you know has has just mentioned. Um, I think the fact that they were all connected, I felt that, that was a very weak connection, especially when it went to Quantum of Solace. I just felt like they said they were doing a, a trilogy or something at the time. And I, I hardly saw a connection until the very end of the movie. It just, it just, the whole thing felt weak to me. And then at Spectre, with the end of that and how they tried to link everything together, I thought was kind of lame. 
I was happy when Spectre came out only because the barrel sequence was back at the beginning of the movie. And then I thought, I don't care how bad this movie is. I'm just happy it's opening that way. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, looking back on that, uh, I think they're all pretty weak. I think Casino Royale, I thought, was the best of the bunch. I thought that was a really good movie, like like really excellent. Um, but I, too, miss, like, like Bob was saying, I mean, I, I grew up on, you know, like all of us, I guess, or most, some of us, you know, grew up on, on the 60s films. And it got to the point when I was watching the Craig films that I was just getting really tired of them. And I, as much as uh, I'll, I'll, I'll also agree that Daniel Craig, I think, is a phenomenal, a phenomenal actor. And mm -hmm. I think he did a great job in these movies. I really, really do. But I got to the point because of how the movies themselves were going, I got tired of seeing him in the role, even though he was a good actor. And I just longed right. to see Sean Connery or George Lazenby again, you know, or even Timothy Dalton again. I was just <laughs> long, wow, long. Well, that thanks, bad, huh? Thanks, thanks to uh, artificial intelligence, we we may still yeah. see those guys again. You never know. Getting okay. back to Thunderball, it's also yeah. one of my favorites because exactly what you said, Steve, about the international sense of alarm. When Jack Schwartzman and Kevin McClory remade it as Never Say Never Again, they right. completely missed the point of uh, making it an epic worldwide adventure. I thought a lot of points just came off just not well done. I mean, even little things like in Thunderball, when Bond walks into the conference room and the minister is instructing everybody and playing the tape inspector yes. there was right. such a tension in there and you had all the double o agents there i think ken adams set terrence's direct direction and uh it, there there was a sense of 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 a big epic adventure going along yep. to this day 100%. I, still, I still watch that movie and then of course claudine auger is so gorgeous I she mean, is uh, they 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 were off the charts there i love the fact she's in the pool she's dressed in that uh that little bikini and she says, I better put on something more comfortable, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then one person we haven't talked about, and I, even though he didn't have much to do in the film, yeah. I think Rick von Neuter as, uh, as, as Lyle, Felix as yes. Felix was terrific. Terrific. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, and of course the Barry music. So let's move on. Um, Malcolm, why don't you tell us one of your your favorite movies you want to discuss today? Well, okay. First of all, I have to give a shout out. First of all, I agree with you. One last comment on Thunderball because I fully agree. It's the most. I, I find it very entertaining. It's got a great storyline. Uh, I'll tell you in a minute. You'll know why it ties to something I want to talk about here too. But the dialogue and, and like when when Bond is with Largo at um, at Palmyra. When uh, when they're at the when they're having their dialogue with Domino and Bond uh, at the restaurant at uh, in the in Nassau, every they, there was a chemistry of every character, I think. And I just wanted Absolutely. to throw that in. And each one of those and, and the dialogue I thought was fantastic. Yes. When she says, give me something to put on and he hands her the slippers and it's just yeah. <laughs> and the look on her face. It's just very, very pr perfect. Uh, secondly, I did want to say, I think Casino Royale is a near perfect movie, I have to say, but the rest, I agree with all the other comments. And the third thing I wanted to say is I didn't select a Bond movie as one of my top three because I was trying to stay away and go to other spy genre. But I will say that From Russia With Love is probably my favorite Sean Connery Bond movie, but my favorite of all time is right behind Danny there on the wall on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And we had a screening on Sunday. We had 15 people there. 
who none of them had seen the movie. So, wow. I, so, so I pulled a Steve Rubin and pulled remarks from you from the theater several weeks ago and made some remarks about the movie and everybody was just riveted to the movie. So here we are. There are mild Bond fans, but they had never seen it. And so Honor Majesty's, I never get tired of watching. Anyway, enough of Christmas go to film. <laughs> yeah. well, here's, here's a question for you guys, because I've been thinking about this lately, because uh, Lazenby always gets a lot of flack for being the flat, you know, uh, the, the flat, dull, uh, not so much dull, but just the inexperienced Bond with no acting experience. I completely fight back on that because I think considering he had no experience on whatsoever, he's very comfortable in the role. You know, he, he comes is. across very well. But here's my theory about George. If George hadn't gotten that absolutely god-awful advice from his agent that Bond was over and get out of any potential contract, which, and of course, I've said many times in the history of advice is probably the worst given to anybody. Mm -hmm. um, if he had gone on to play Bond, I don't think the series would have reached the heights that Roger brought to it. I think that by the early 70s, uh, people were beginning to tire a little bit of serious down and dirty spying. They wanted a little touch of sparkle of something that was a little, perhaps a little more humorous. And I thought Roger supplied that perfectly with the first Bond movie. Uh, he did Live and Let Die and then reached a zenith with Spy Who Loved Me. But I don't think George would have carried the series to a hype. And I'm curious what you guys think. Well, I agree with you, Steve. Um, as much as I love Secret Service, um, and I I do enjoy uh, uh, George as as Bond, um, I don't think that yeah I I don't I think that Bond as a series would have been possible would have been in trouble had George continued for another two films, and that as you say the seventies you know wanted a lighter you know the audience was looking for a lighter touch. And um, the Roger Moore was kind of perfect for that particular role, though I though I'm not a I'm not a big fan of Live and Let Die or Man with the Golden Gun, and I thought that they picked themselves up and and reinvented themselves once they hit Spy Who Loved Me, but uh, Live and Let Die for me was lackluster. You know things like Mrs. Bell and the plane and the and the non-existent fight at the end where Roger you know kicks. Um, Mr. Big's hand and then shoves a, you know, inflatable, you know, inflatable shark pellet down his throat stuff. And it just, you know, I, it was, it was the first Bond film. It was actually, I should say, it was the second Bond film I had walked out in a row at the end going, what, what happened? I don't, I don't understand what's happened to the series. I did that with Diamonds Are Forever. And I did that with Of course, you and, Dan, you and Danny, of course, were on the set of diamonds yes yeah and i had high hopes for diamonds because i i was a goofy i was a goofy kid at the time and skipped school and went to all the sets and locations that that diamonds are forever shot at while they were shooting um so i was there for a lot of the sequences um you know uh the bambi you know a couple being you know the bambi and thumper fight i was there for that and i was out on the oil rig for the you know battle sequence out there and stuff so but i was very you know it's like i was so excited you know having been on the set of diamonds are forever and then to finally see the final film i was like oh my god this doesn't look like this. what was fascinating is that the final film didn't 
feel or look like what was shot in person. Interesting. It was the strangest thing I had ever experienced because, you know, the the um, the scene between t- the scene between Lana Wood, uh, the scene between um, uh, with Lana in the swimming pool in Palm Springs with Bond slapping Jill. I was there for that. And that was such an intense, serious scene in person that the way it plays in the film is is just lackluster. Mm. It was and, and everything felt like that all the way, all the way through. It was very, very strange. So in any case, that's my that's some personal stuff. But in sure. any case, no, no, of course. The of end course. of Diamonds, I was like, and <clears throat> watching the film, I was like, that's the end of the film. What <laughs> you know, it's funny. Like, I mean, what just happened? This. I would like to see more. I would have liked to have seen more George films, uh, Lazenby as Bond, but I don't think that, again, I don't think that was the direction they were going. I watched I it again recently and it just holds up so nicely. I just, and let me just add to that. I, I think I agree with you on that, Steve, but, it, but it's sort of a rhetorical agreement in a sense, because I still muse and hold my chin and look up and say, what would George have been doing if they made the same creative selections that they made in, in Diamonds Are Forever and George was in it? Think about that. It's very interesting to hear you, Bob, and what you just said about being on the set, because I thought that there were a lot of elements in Diamonds Are Forever that could have been a lot sharper and a lot better. I was always distracted by the very first scene when he says, where is Ernst Stavro Blofeld? And they didn't do any connection. It was almost like a throw in to make sure that people knew that it had connected to Secret Service. I, there were so many funky things in the movie uh, that were, I thought that the... Um, and I and I loved the the idea that it was in Vegas and and the, the White House and all of that. But it it just but the question is, in order to answer your question, then I'll get to my choice. Uh, is that it's hard to imagine what would what would their creative choices have been had George remained on, and why did they change directions to right uh, right? Well, yeah. I think so. I think George demonstrated with his limited acting ability a, a flair for some comedy. I mean, there's some really funny mm-hmm. stuff between him and Ruby, and you know, and all that kind of stuff. But what is your selection? Well, I, I again, having made my comments on Bond, which of course got me into this genre to begin with, I, my first selection, my number one film uh, that I watched over and over and over again is The Spy Who Came In From The Cold. I just, I thought Richard Burton's, his playing, when I already had, and I didn't see it until I was well into the Bond movie. So all of a sudden I said, this reminds me of From Russia With Love, that Cold War era, the West Berlin tired agent who's now, the, the it's a double cross, the relationship that he developed with the British uh, communist uh, and developed his relationship with her. And then it turns out that at the very end, we're all surprised by what transpires and what he thought he was doing was not what he was doing. And then he confesses and it turns out that everything was what it should have been anyway and it had a very sad ending i thought the film was 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 tremendously well edited and uh, richard burton was sufficiently dour Uh, my wife will not watch it again with me because she says it's too depressing but uh, that's uh, one person's view but i thought that uh, and he was you know it won it won a whole host of awards at at bafta and he was nominated for an academy award in uh, uh here uh, with the Oscars. And I just thought that um, it, what, it, if you had to put something in a time capsule for a hundred years from now and say, what is the, what was the cold war like? I think that the spy who loved me 
illustrates it pretty well, especially the opening scene when it comes down. And as you know, in my bond room, I have the sign you are leaving the American sector, which is in my um, which is in the bond room. And the first scene in the movie comes down and you see the soldiers uh, in between the uh, the Soviet and American areas. And you and you're what you just get this chilling feeling of I know what it was like to be there at that time, even though I wasn't there. And it, the cinematography was just stunning and as to, as to how they did it. So um, and I also think that um, and it had some pretty good um, the the twist, I think, at the end is really what stunned me at the end of the movie. Um, and uh, as I said, it it is the quintessential um, Cold War movie. And it ranks with From Russia With Love, in my view. I would love to one day I'll do a double feature of those two films and see what uh, at the well, house. I, I'm going to show up because I am um, I hesitant. I'm hesitant to say this. I've never seen it. Wow, okay. Really? Are we gonna? Oh wow! Has everyone else seen it? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's a terrific film. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. got to catch up on that. I think I watched Thunderball too many times. Uh, <laughs> it's funny. I, I was gonna my my one of my choices, which is very much sounds like it probably could be a good double feature with a spy who came in from the cold, is 1966's The Quiller Memorandum, which is, I love that film. Which mm -hmm. is uh, which uh, features probably one of my favorite John Barry scores. That's non-Bond, and if you guys haven't seen the Quiller Memorandum, and I'm referring to many of the listeners, this is George Siegel, kind of at the top of his game in the mid '60s. Yes, and he had been doing a number of comedies, but he plays an American secret agent working for British intelligence, going after neo-Nazis. And uh, it has a wonderful uh, supporting cast, including the luscious Sentaburger. And I have no, yes. no idea how Sentaburger never got into a Bond movie, but she's always wonderful. And then uh, you have um, Max von Sydow, who later gets into Never Say Never Again as Blofeld, playing a German nationalist neo-Nazi named October. October, right. Exactly. But that's that's one of my favorites. So I think uh, we'll have to do a double feature, Malcolm. Uh, you'll yeah. introduce me to yours and I'll introduce you to mine. But you've seen Quiller, right? Yes. Yeah. A long time. I, I like George Siegel. OK, but in, in the in the funnier roles, my favorite role of his was it was hilarious. It was the Terminal Man. Oh, Has sure. anyone here seen the Terminal Man? One yes. That's uh, another great film. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I got to work with George briefly on a Showtime feature shooting in Toronto. <laughs> and me being the film nut, I would go up to him and I would start humming. And he would look at me and we would start humming Quiller together. And it was just really a funny moment. That was so, right before he called security to get you out of there. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. So, Bob, uh, you're up. Uh, you're up with uh, your first choice as your favorite. Like, you know, I mean, I mean, it's still, you know, my 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 favorite of all time still is Goldfinger because that's what introduced me to the whole to the whole genre. That was just a, a phenomenal experience for me from beginning to end. But I knew that you know we were. Uh, but my my uh, my take on on today's topic was I wanted to try and stay away from Bond because. Bond is is always going to come up as you know uh, with 20 25 films somewhere along the line it's it's going to become somebody's favorite uh, film here and there but so to kind of go the, the opposite direction of um of where we just were 
I would I would I would then have to say that even though it started life as a pilot for a TV show, I would have to say to trap a spy, the first man from uncle film that was released. Right. It was uh, shot. It was shot in color. Um, Don Medford mm -hmm. in top form directing. Um, uh, um, um, the cinematography is, 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 is wonderful. The, um, Metro color is, uh, um, uh, wonderfully, uh, is wonderfully saturated, but it's a spy, it, but it's, it's of that era. It's a spy film that is the first one to introduce the idea of an international organization that doesn't work country that's that is you know looking out for the you know is looking out for protecting the the world and what it ha and and the best that it has to offer and and up until then um as far as the 60s go we pretty much had you know bond working for you know mi6 and whenever there was another secret agent spoof or something else um they were working for usually for uh, cia and the introduction of Uncle as an international organization, a peacekeeping um, organization that doesn't work for any nation, was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Then you add to that one of Robert Vaughn's best performances um, with with Secret Agent Napoleon Solo, who is much more of a white knight and much more um, and much more you know uh dimensional than than bond um and um uh add to that the idea of not a criminal organization like specter but an international organization like thrush which is not an organization per se per se but considers itself a supra nation that considers itself a nation unto itself that's going to rule the world and in this particular plot is looking for just real estate in order to facilitate a home base for this this international cadre of uh of people who consider themselves you know loyal to a nation as opposed to just being criminals remind, so remind us what thrush stands for again well, thrush in the no in the in the novels later on, uh, they came up with the idea of creating taking the letters of thrush and David McDaniel, a writer uh, of the novels, came up with the technological hierarchy for the removal of undesirables and the subjugation of humanity. And yes, I know. Yes, it's 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 more of a tongue twister than the special executive for counterintelligence, terror, revenge, and extortion. But Thrush in the TV series in the in the writer's notes, the name Thrush comes from the name of the capital city of the nation that is the central location where the Thrush Council meets to take orders from the ultimate computer that is their uh brainchild and um and and the basic central uh hub of information for the uh for the organization so that said to trap a spy has a terrific just almost cold warish 
kind of story to it where Solo is up against a a multinational corporation that's um, that's part of Thrush that is you know that is that um, um, is is planning is 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 part of a plan. Uh, part of the, the uh, part of the plan to um, get a hold of a African, a upcoming African nation, and turn it into home the uh, new uh, the new nation of uh, thrush, as it as it were, as, and, as, uh, as opposed to Wakanda, as opposed to Wakanda, <laughs> um, and uh, it was the first and. and and, you know, and as a, as a plot point, unlike Bond and many of the other shows of that time, it also introduced the idea of having an average everyday American or, you know, international, uh, the idea of taking an, an innocent person and sweeping them up into the spy genre, which brings us back to North by Northwest. To Trap a Spy and Uncle are very much not a carbon copy, but you can see the, the, uh, that, that uncle is more it exists more in the realm of north by northwest and hitchcock and seven days of may than it does in the world of james bond though you know though solo is a as a you know, ta you know a tuxedo wearing uh spy and and the story itself is complex is is complex enough to keep you guessing as to what how it's going to turn out and it has a terrific twist at the end that I don't think the audience of that time or solo uh, can foresee. And it's a nice, uh, it's, you know, it's, a, it's just a very well, it's a very tight story with great characters, great actors, Fritz Weaver playing the uh, thrush uh, villain Vulcan uh, before there was Spock. And, um, and, and so my, and, and, and to top it all off, I'm going to say it's one of, Jerry Goldsmith's best spy scores, oh. as far as music goes. And doesn't it also feature Santa Berger? Isn't she? And, uh... No, she's in the co. Yeah, Trap a Spy was co-featured with the Spy with My Face on some oh. double bills, and uh, Santa Berger was in that as a thrush agent. Oh, and I'd also add to Trap a Spy has Luciana Paluzzi. Right there, you go. Thrush right. Agent. right. There you go. That's who well, I was she, So she cut her teeth on being a thrush agent before she right. was a Spectre agent. Before she was uh, Fiona Volpe. Yes. Very good, Bob. Well, you know, Uncle was was big time for all of us. I my my first cousin had married uh, the sister of Johnny Provost, who was little Timmy on all those Lassie shows back in the sixties. So I remember going to John Provost's house for the very first time on a Friday night. And of course, everybody's around the television watching a show called The Man from Uncle, which was in black and white. then. I think that was that first yeah. season. And it was a thing. And uh, of course, Bond had contributed to this worldwide interest in spy stuff. So it was a, it coming into television big time that year uh, with comedy the Secret Life of Henry V, Get Smart, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, Danny, what's another film on your list? Uh, well, it's one that's already been mentioned, but I wanted to say it anyway. It's If Chris File, um, which is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, I did bump 
Honor Majesty's Secret Service off my list because I didn't want to do Bond after Bond and everything. Uh, <laughs> but so I'll, I'll just acknowledge Secret Service. I It's probably my second favorite James Bond movie. Uh, it gets really hard with those 60s films, Bond films, because they're so, all of them I think are so excellent. Uh, but Ipcris File, I just think is a fantastic movie. And it is so different than the Bond films that were happening at that time. Um, and a number of factors go into it. Sidney J. Fury's direction is a big part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, John Barry's score, I think, is classic. I think it's it's excellent. Michael Caine's performance is great. Um, and uh, I think those are the th- like three key elements that really set it apart. It ha- just has a great mood, a great feel. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's high on, on my list, uh, you know, for, for sure. spy movies. Sure. Yeah, now, I, I heard recently someone told me that there is actually a television series right now called Ipcris. Yeah, yeah, I think it was maybe last year or something in in England on the air. Yeah, Steve, but, uh, Steve, what's another film on your list? Well, you know, I'll tell you my second choice. Before I tell you that, I wanted to just pivot slightly, Steve, to what you mentioned before as being on your list, which was Quiller, and really talk about another reason which you hadn't mentioned of why Quiller really is such a special film in the subgenre. And that is the fact that this is a film that was written by the great playwright, Harold Pinter and Pinter, you know, his notoriety was primarily for being a playwright, but in cinema, he really gained uh, great prestige for this really marvelous trilogy of films that he made with Joseph Losey, the servant accident and the go-between And when it was first announced, I remember reading the press notes that Pinter was going to be adapting this novel, The Quiller Memorandum. People were kind of in shock because, you know, he was a a man of letters and certainly a very literate man. But I think that that film benefits greatly because of his contributions, because lest anyone doubt that anybody but Pinter (laughs) wrote The Quiller Memorandum, you need only see a little bit of his work to know it could have only been him because I'm sure you recall that the great thing about the screenplay is that when Siegel and Berger and George Sanders and all the characters, Von Sydow, when everybody's communicating with each other, the real, you know, the kind of pressure turning and the screw turning and the way that the narrative is conveyed, it's not so much in what people are saying, but it's in those terrible pregnant pauses those extended silences where they're really communicating and conveying their feelings, not through what they're saying, but what they're not saying. And as such, really, even though that picture is directed by Michael Anderson, who we know is a great director, did another great spy film, you know, Operation Crossbow, um, that movie ultimately to me is more of the Harold Pinter imprint on it than anything, which is really what makes it a great film. But my second choice for my second favorite spy film, I, I know this probably is not a popular choice at all, and it's a very eclectic choice, and I don't know that many people have even seen it. I, But it's a film from the early 70s. You were mentioning how just before Spy Who Loved Me, uh, the, the mass audiences around the world were getting tired of that sort of down and dirty approach to spy cinema. And they wanted an antidote. So that they wanted to go back to the gloss and spectacle that Spy Who Loved Me provided. Well, the picture that I chose as my number two is a film from 1973 that Michael Winner did called Scorpio. And 
this is a picture with Burt Lancaster and uh, Alain Delon. And it's interesting to watch that film because it is the it is a perfect antidote and the total antithesis to to the world that was provided for you in the Bond films. All the glamour, the exoticism, the eroticism, all of that that was always so beautifully conveyed in the earlier Bond pictures is out the window in Scorpio. Scorpio is very down and dirty, very grimy, very nihilistic, very cynical. And it's about not just the double crosses, but the triple crosses. And there's an interesting parallel between this film and the previous picture that Michael Winner had did, which I'm sure you saw, The Mechanic, because there is this great relationship between Bronson and Jan Michael Vincent in The Mechanic that kind of parallels the relationship between the senior man and the junior man Lancaster and Alain Delon in Scorpio. And I thought to myself, I like these pictures equally, but which picture of the two of them really falls into the spy genre? And I said, no, ultimately it is Scorpio, because if you think about it, the mechanic, they're not really spies. That's really more of an international crime syndicate. They're hitmen, they're assassins. But the film that really delves into the world of international espionage in a manner that's completely, like I say, the antithesis to the world of Bond is Scorpio. And just the way the narrative is conveyed, the, uh, like I say, the very sort of downbeat ending, uh, it was just for me a great change of pace. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a worthy addition to the whole world of spy cinema, that film. It's, it's little seen, as I say, and I don't think, uh, I think it's wildly underappreciated. Well, you, you had me at Burt Lancaster. All <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mal, uh, let's see. Let's see who's up here. Uh, Malcolm, I think we're due to get something new from you. Well, sure. I think Bob mentioned it earlier, and um, I'm going to bring it up because it's the movie that I've watched over and over again and would take to the desert island with me. Uh, and um, it's North by Northwest. Yes, I, I think that uh, I, I think Cary Grant was at the apex of his zenith during the movie. Uh, he he showed uh, a variety of emotions to see him drunk, to see him dealing with himself, uh, trying to get through the, uh, and, and, you know, the man who is being uh, uh, chased who didn't do it. Uh, typical Hitchcockian theme. Uh, and uh, even Marie Saint, the scene that they had on the train, I couldn't help but think that somebody was thinking about that and from Russia with love. because. What, what what do you do besides lure men to their doom on the 20th century limited? <laughs> exactly. And, 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 it was, and, and their dialogue was sexy and classy at the same time. Uh, James Mason was a perfect villain. Of course, the uh, climax on Mount Rushmore was was exciting. Uh, the Bernard Herrmann score. Um, it was, uh, and, and, and again, that uh, it, some people said to me, well, was it a spy movie? And I, because there's so many elements to it, but the answer is it was a spy movie. And it was clearly a spy movie that was, uh, that was uh, around this innocent man who was being uh, chased uh, improperly. And they all wanted to find out where's Mr. Kaplan. So uh, I just, uh, it, it, it was almost my number one choice. 
that it's 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 right behind this uh, the spy who came in from the cold. And I think that when you when you and the scene, of course, the 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 famous scene when he's being chased by the crop duster. There's just so many elements within the movie that fit perfectly and and make it entertaining and rewatchable every time uh, we see it. And we've seen it with friends. And that, as I said, my wife does not want to watch the spy who came in from the cold anymore. But she will watch North by Northwest because she's still in love with Cary Grant. So. So that 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 helps. Well, well Richard Maybaum in creating the the scene where Bond is chased by the helicopter and from Russia with Love has yeah. has echoes of that yeah. crop duster. For sure, absolutely. Well, yeah, 100%. the train, the crop duster. Yeah, and, no, I mean I, that's what I'm saying. You watch it and you and you realize that it's uh, years before, and it's like, hmm, somebody was watching uh, Alfred and his uh, direction and his writing there. Sure. It was, it well, I, I think uh, one of you said that if if Alfred Hitchcock had directed a Bond movie, this would have been his Bond movie, no question, without a doubt. Well, 100%. Steve, do you know? Do you know that? Um, I because I had heard that periodically that at one point in time, Cary Grant. Well, maybe it's what you just said. Was was Cary Grant thought of for Bond? I mean, obviously, it would be thought of. I mean, that could be the case. But was he considered at any point? I, I I'd read somewhere, but you know, you read these things and writers for the press you never can quite believe I them think in, in 1962 when they were or 61 when they were thinking of casting bond they got all sorts of ideas i mean roger yeah. moore was considered he was considered too much of a pretty boy at that time mm -hmm. richard johnson who was a fine actor and did a good spy movie called uh deadly danger route well i was oh. thinking of De deadlier than the male with that's good too yeah summer yeah uh, he, girls he, do. he wouldn't I'm sorry, Bob, what'd you say? And some girls do. Right. I mean, he was an interesting yeah. choice, but I think part of the problem is some of these actors wouldn't adhere to a seven-year contract, so they were having trouble. I mean, uh, I mean, over the years, various people, but I think um, Carrie would have been interesting, but he probably was, well, first of all, he was not going to go to a seven-year contract. There was no way, and he was probably a little old by the time uh, Bond came along. Uh, I think he retired actually two years later after he did Walk Don't Run. So I think pretty much. Um, so I didn't hear about him. I mean, Paul Newman, Steve McQueen, Jimmy Stewart. I love the Jimmy Stewart reference. Oh, oh, my, my name is Bob. Bob, 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 Bob. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the movie would have had been seven minutes longer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw out a title that I saw fairly recently and within the last decade. Yeah. But I thought that their series has actually uh, scored a few points on Barn, and that's the Kingsman movies. The first Kingsman with Colin Firth, uh, I just thought was very inventive and clever. I enjoyed that. And was doing this, doing kind of what non-Bond movies have been doing for years and kind of spoofing the whole spy genre, I thought was mm -hmm. very clever. Um, I didn't like the second one as most. But we're coming to the end. I want to give you guys a couple of minutes to tell you, us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment, because you've been kind enough to join me on this podcast. Steve, tell us a little bit about this book you've written, The Man from Belize. Well, it's it's really kind of my ode and my homage to the whole world of Fleming. Uh, I have... Um, I'm in the midst of doing the uh, the follow-up right now. I'm really planning it. It's planned as a trilogy. And, uh, you know, the first book is, uh, it's out there. My, uh, you know, it's basically, uh, it's, I guess you could say a more, uh, 
not modern day interpretation, but it's a it's a slightly more uh, kind of as a, it it combines the world weary cynicism of some of the '60s and early '70s spy pictures with the glamour and spectacle of Bond. My protagonist is essentially a man who had been a rogue uh, black ops uh, renegade operative who also in latter life ended up becoming the world's foremost cardiovascular surgeon. And so essentially you have a man who has the ability to take lives just as stealthily as he can save lives. And, um, you know, it, uh, it was a great way to, for me to sort of like, as I say, pay homage to the genre that I love so much while creating character and a narrative that I think, uh, kind of turns it on his head and, puts in a few new spins and twists and turns that haven't been readily available before in film or for that matter, even in books, because believe me, when I tell you, I really kind of absorbed everything I could from, you know, what Malcolm was talking about with the press file. I read as much Len Dayton as I could. Also when he mentioned spy who came in from the cold, I'm a big, big fan of Le Carre in addition to Forsyth and Ludlum. So I've read about all there is out there in spy fiction, including Ken Follett. Um, and so this is basically the uh, the first of what's going to be a trilogy. I'm in the midst of the, of the follow-up novel right now. And, and this um, is available on Amazon? We can pick this it up? A, this, yeah, The Man from Belize, it is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and also through, uh, through henrygraypublishing.com as well. Fabulous, fabulous. Yeah. Now, Danny and I uh, talked to each other. We were both in London at the same time. Danny, you are now installing your your uh, spy prop and and paraphernalia and memorabilia exhibit in um, in London, correct? It, that was happening at the time we were talking when you we were both in London. And uh, no, it, it, it happened already. There was a week long festival. And so it's not a months long exhibit, but that was installed. It was there. It happened. It was very successful. So and it may talking about what's coming next. It may be leading to another uh, exhibit uh overseas that i can't go into yet because it's it's just in discussion so if i was to ask you what are some of the highlights of your exhibit in terms of items that would kind of knock our socks off what are some of your favorite items in your uh, exhibit well i mean my personal favorite of my collection which has always in, has been in my exhibit is uh one of the uh, uncle man from uncle communicators which was the first cigarette case communicator and that's that's my all-time favorite piece. Everybody, I have the shoe phone. Everybody thinks, oh, it's got to be the shoe phone. Well, the shoe phone is really the seems to be the favorite of every single museum and venue I have. People to this day keep saying that's like the star of the show. But my in my my personal favorite is that Uncle Communicator, just because it was the first gadget I ever saw on television. You know, in the first episode of any spy show I ever saw. And it just was kind of an incredible story about how I found it, which is no time to share now. But it was like all that together makes it my favorite piece. But, you know, well, it's funny. You shouldn't when you met, excuse me, I naivete. Uh, when you say shoe phone, I'm thinking of Get Smart. Was there also a shoe phone in Get Smart? No, that's what I'm talking about. When I say shoe phone, it's the oh. shoe phone from Get Smart. Oh, it is. OK, okay. thank you. Because I thought you said uncle. No, of course. Of course. Oh. Um, no. Max Miles Smart. Would you believe? <laughs> perfect, perfect impression, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Bob, what are you up to these days? Are you working on anything specific? Uh, nothing, nothing, uh, you know, nothing amazing. 
amazing at, at the at the moment. I'm contributing uh, design. You know, I'm con <laughs> contributing uh, uh, creature stuff, uh, concepts and stuff for a Paramount Plus show called Evil, um, which nobody ever seems to uh, know what the heck that is. That's this. That's what's so strange about working on um, streaming shows these days is because there's 50 million of them. You work on something and even though it's some of the top rated, even, even if it's a top rated show, nobody's heard of it. So uh, that's the weird thing. And other than that, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to dive into uh, writing a um, super spy novel using uh, chat GPT and see what comes up. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, and you're a member of the writer's guild, as I recall. So yes. uh, you might be shooting yourself <laughs> in the foot there. Yeah, no, I, I was tempted to try just, just uh, see, because I, I already heard that the guys who do Law and Order were already playing around with creating plots that they can bring a writer to polish for three weeks, which, of course, oh. horrifying. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I actually have played around a little bit with chat GPT and it is frighteningly good yeah. in doing all kinds of stuff. And what frightened me about some of the stuff I've had it do for me is that it actually has a personality and it's not just a personality. It's a kind personality. It goes out of its way to be kind. And it's wow. that on itself is like really scary. Nah. Now, That's if, right. you, if yeah. you're re, if you're looking at a chat GPT written <laughs> thing and yeah. you go and you go in and start to remove a word because you don't like it, does a little voice come on and say something along Hal 9000? Hal, yes. Yeah. Hal and Siri get together and team up on you. It's really bad. <laughs> you yeah. weren't thinking of cutting that, were you? <laughs> now, Malcolm you Trout. You no, know, no. They say something like, you don't really want to cut that, do you? <laughs> yeah, right. now, now, Malcolm, you travel all over the world for your legal cases. You are the James Bond equivalent of the attorney uh, at large. Uh, where are you traveling these days? Uh, I'm going, I'm representing a client right now from the Netherlands. Actually, what, what Steve's saying is correct. I was inspired by Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I wanted to be a lawyer, but I didn't want to. And then I decided it was an international lawyer. So I geared my schooling and my practice toward that. And so now probably 40% of the work that I do is international in scope, meaning clients coming here either with litigation or contracts or entertainment issues or investment and those kinds of things. I will be going to uh, Paris to speak on chat GPT and the dangers to lawyers. Uh, wow. And that is, well, the danger is, is that we had a recent event that took place in New York at the New York Supreme Court, which is not the high court. Supreme Court in New York is actually the trial court. And so at the trial court, the a lawyer put together a brief using chat GPT, read it, was in a hurry, filed it and got back. And it was an interesting brief and it cited cases, et cetera. But the cases were fiction. The cases didn't exist. Huh. The lawyer has been sanctioned uh, $26,000 and has been referred to the state bar. So now they're developing the rules for the use of chat GPT in the, in the protection of wow. the preparation of your briefs. But what is interesting to this group, which I will have you know, is that uh, several months ago, actually in April, they had a meeting or they had a 
an event, a James Bond event at a Las Feliz mansion, a Frank Lloyd Wright Jr. event. And I went to it and I it was a little lackluster, I thought. And I mean, they did all the glitzy things and it was McAllen was sponsoring it, McAllen Scotch. And they were introducing 60 years of Bond and they have six bottles, one for each 10 years. And I got to talking to one of the folks there and he talked to me and then we started talking about the collection. They came to the house here looked at the collection, and now they're going to have a 10-couple exclusive dinner in New York, which is done by an executive chef, and I'm going to be the uh, sort of the curator. I'm going. To, they picked out things that they want, 21 posters from the collection, as well as some of the toys, including the original briefcase in its original box, I'll have you know, which they never saw before. So I'm going to be having to speak on the 60 years of Bond, 10, 10 years on each of the 10 years, because there's a different bottle for each of the 10 years. So I'll be doing that in mid-September. That's fabulous. Well, all of you guys are out there doing good work as always, and Thrilled to have you guys on. I think the listeners will be very happy when they hear this. Everyone, you've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury. You've been listening to some wonderful stories about the greatest spy movies ever made. I, for one, I'm going to go uh, find a video of Dr. Goldfoot and the girl bombs and burn it. <laughs> uh, and uh, I... Um... <laughs> Uh, thank you all. I really appreciate it. You've been terrific and uh, uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks very much, Steve. Thank you for having me. Good You're to welcome. meet all of you. Same here. Nice meeting all of you. <laughs>